Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi there. Welcome to the Adam Ruins Everything podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. Uh, This is the podcast offshoot of our true TV show, Adam Ruins Everything. First of all, for everyone who's asking, yes, the show is coming back. We're doing all new episodes starting August 23rd. You can catch them then on True TV. It's going to be so much fun. And you can find full clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Okay, so you might be asking yourself, I know what the TV show is. What is this Adam Ruins Everything podcast? Let me explain. On the show, we have incredible expert guests on every week who, unfortunately, I only get to talk to for like two minutes on the show. But I had so much fun chatting with them on set when the cameras weren't rolling. I was like, I want to talk to these people for longer. So that's what we're going to be doing on the show. We're going to be talking to the incredible expert guests that we had on the show uh, in a longer format about their work, about the ideas contained in their work, about the ideas that we talk about on the show. And heck, we might end up talking to a couple comedians who've been on the show as well. But uh, for most of the time, it's going to be all expert all the time. It'll be a lot of fun. So my very first guest on the podcast is Salita Reynolds, who's the general manager of the L.A. Department of Transportation. And I was I'm really, really excited to talk to her because here's the thing. I personally think if you've seen the Cars episode, which she appeared on, you probably know that I think car culture is craziness. It's an insane transportation system that we've saddled ourselves with that has so many downsides environmentally, just in terms of what it does to our cities, in terms of how expensive it is, how hard it is to get around. And the cool thing is that L.A., this like you know centerpiece of car culture in America is in fact making huge strides to change this by adding public transportation by taking out lanes and turning them into bike lanes or public plazas they're really doing incredible things and Salita Reynolds is one of the people making that happen and turning LA from you know the epicenter of car carmageddon into a model for the nation so i'm so excited to talk to her about how she's doing that and uh, all the great things LA is doing uh, so here it is Hey, Salita, thank you so much for being here. I know you as a spokesperson of, of DOT, but what do you do day to day? <laughs> like, it seems like such a huge thing to be responsible for, for transportation in Los Angeles, you know? How does one impact that on a daily basis? Uh, mostly I just hang out, Adam. Really? I just drink coffee and just kick it in my office. There's really not a lot to do. No, it's um, no, it's a good question. It's a good question because here's, here's something else about departments of transportation in, in different cities. Mm-hmm. They are not all the same mm. um, because – and some cities don't even have a department of transportation, like City of Oakland. Oakland, California, has not had a Department of Transportation, is just in the process of trying to create Wait, one. The, the, the whole city had no Department of Transportation? Correct. That's um, so bizarre. Who was is. in charge of transportation? The Public Works Agency. Oh, okay. Right? And so then, and there are a lot of cities in California like that, and so then the, the people who run the Public Works Agencies, um, they tend to be people who come from, like, big infrastructure backgrounds. So they might be, you know, their expertise is in sewers, or their expertise is uh-huh. in, you know, bridges 
is or their expertise is in kind of the big deal city making guts of the city kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And transportation might be just a little nook inside of a giant public works agency. So it's almost like an engineering problem to them on that if they're thinking about it on that level. That's exactly what it is. They're just like, okay, I build a highway, this many cars. It holds it holds up all the cars. That's all I got to do is make a thing where the cars don't literally fall over. Yeah. Yeah. About maybe 20 years or so ago, the state of California started giving money to you as a city if you had a bicycle master plan. So all of a sudden, Uh and if you had a bicycle coordinator, and so all of a sudden, all these cities, you know, they were looking around thinking, yeah, all right, well, let's get a let's get a bike. Let's get a bike person then. And Mm -hmm. usually that person came from some other they were tucked away in some other weird nook (laughs) in the bureaucracy. They were like the 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 person who writes the poetry that goes on the bus or something. Right. Because they were they were this is this is totally and 1000 percent true based on real people. My my real first bosses like they were. But it absolutely is. You're just making remember that in New York City on the subways, there's subway poetry. And and it and you're making me flash the fact that somewhere there's a bureaucrat picking the poetry. Yes. Okay, it needs to be transit related poetry, but we'd love to have a woman. You know, they're they're like trying to figure out the. Yeah, this one feels political (laughs) over here. This feels like she's trying to do a race thing. I'm not into it. We got to let's this one's about flowers. Let's pick that one. Go. <laughs> yeah, no, totally, and and they were all they really were, or they were, and they become now they become the bike the person, bike, the bike person, or they were, or they were uh, hippies who had become you know traffic engineers, and then they got to go do this weird thing, mm-hmm. um, which was only a weird thing, and you know because this money was available. But what they didn't understand, what what I don't think bureaucracies understood was happening, was that they were creating this kind of revolution inside departments. You have yeah. people who have been fighting and fighting and fighting to get those those guys who are sort of and I'm sure there were women as well yeah. who just want to you know oh, well, let's build the road and here's how I, and now you have somebody coming online saying well I went out and got all this money for you to build yeah. these bike lanes but because we're in a big city I we're not widening the road so those lanes that you adore so much mm-hmm. I'm going to need to repurpose I'm just going to need to borrow one of those to make it into a bike lane and that's where you had this massive clash so this all started because you asked me what I do every day. So, so, <laughs> so really, we're, this is a very roundabout way of saying that departments of transportation grew up organically out of a whole bunch of different um, outside forces that yeah. you don't necessarily see. So, real, so real quick, you do this. Give me a real qu- quick okay. bullet point. So, um, on street and off street parking. Okay. Right. I actually own 129 properties in the city of Los Angeles, and Whoa. most of them are surface lots. Not um, personally, the DOT does. The de- department. You're not of transportation. saying that you're a parking lot queen no, personally. No, no. Okay. Well, some of them are just vacant. I mean, okay, there's just it. pieces, parcels that the Department of Transportation owns. Wow, okay. Um, you know, so we regulate all the metered parking and set the prices and do all those kinds of things. I have a giant uh, paint and sign shop and a signal shop. So we've got about 200 kind of skilled trades workers who do, you know, who fix the signals, who put the stripes on the street, who put the signs on the street. Got it. Um, I operate a transit system, which is sort of unique for Department of Transportation. So it's the second largest one in L.A. County, which is like saying that, like, 
Fanta is the second largest soft drink after Coke, but it's I'll take the silver. But that's the buses and the the Dash and Commuter Express buses, and we we have about twenty six million rides a year, so it's actually nothing to sneeze at. It's a pretty big system. And then I have parking officers, traffic officers, so the direct traffic. They write tickets. That's actually one of the largest parts of the organization. There's close to six hundred people, including crossing guards, um, that do that work. So when I drive home near, I live near Dodger Stadium, and Mm -hmm. so on a game night, your it's your people. Who are directing the traffic yeah. and, and getting all those people out of there and changing the signals and all that stuff? LADOT. Got it. Uh, and then I also regulate all the franchises in the city. So that means taxis because taxis are regulated by franchise oh, in the wow. city of Los Angeles. It also means non emergency medical transport. And then, weirdly, in the weirdest twist of all, it also means pipeline franchises. So that includes gas, oil, and electricity that what? runs in pipelines underneath the city of Los Angeles. Wait, wait, wait. You, you, you are in charge of the gas and oil pipelines, too? Well, I hold the, I regulate the franchise. So it's sort okay. of like a landlord-tenant relationship. The companies have to sort of write us a, a check, and we have to make, Got we have it. to, yeah, it's nuts. That is a huge, that is a huge bundle of responsibility. Super nuts. And then there's all the engineers, right? So there's the yeah. active transportation program, there's Vision Zero, there's shared mobility, there's bike share, there's car share, there's all of those things as well. So, so here's the here's the thing I'm curious about. Is it kind of seems like every city in the country to take this bigger than LA for a second, every city I go to, it's almost you know it it, it reminds me of food trucks. You know how every city you go to they're like we're really into food trucks mm-hmm. here and you can tell it's a countrywide trend. Also every city I go to they're like we just added a bunch of bike lanes and a bike share and we're working on light rail, mm-hmm. you know, and like we're streetcar. Don't forget about a streetcar. Oh, oh yeah. They're all working on streetcars yeah, including and, Los Angeles. Uh, Really, LA's working on streetcars. It is, yes. Oh, where's that going to be? Downtown. Oh, that's, on Broadway. Oh man, I love streetcars. They're so cool. It's mm-hmm. like it, that's why that right there. That is why it is uh, red meat that no politician can refuse because it, it captures people's imaginations it, in a way that other things it's don't. Very, yeah, it's very. It's as, certainly in a way a bus doesn't, and a subway. Kind, I mean, I love subways, but a lot of people don't. But a streetcar right. is like so romantic, mm-hmm. right? It seems like almost every big city is like waging that battle. Mm-hmm. In in my view, I'm sure there's plenty that aren't, but it seems like it. Well, I think that what you're observing is. That this kind of trend that's actually been kind of building for a long period of time. They began to, first of all, the the air quality management boards and the fed, feds began to fund this stuff, which meant that if you wanted to get a hold of that money, you had to go out and do uh, some actual planning work. Got and it. so this was all kind of going on. So but the, it was gov- a, the government seeding a little money and that makes it, the, the, like it's federal money makes these little departments blossom kind of? Yes. And there was a guy, his name is John Forrester, and he started this movement called vehicular cycling, which wanted, you know, pushed really hard for bicyclists to be treated as traffic because he felt very strongly that the safest way for a person on a bicycle to behave was to behave as though they were a car. Mm-hmm. So that that really dictated the way we wrote the rule books in the United States for 50 years. That's why, you And that know, was a mistake in your view? The bike is a means to an end of really great cities, um, and not just in the United States, but in in the world, right? It's not really about the bike. It's about creating a city where it's easy and safe for people to get around, to work, exercise into their daily life, et cetera, et cetera. But but the big uh, sort of misfire on the vehicular cycling piece was that that approach, putting, you know, person on a bike next to, you know, a four inch white line and, and fast moving traffic was only enough to attract 
like the the most fit, the most aggressive, yeah. the smallest percentage of people. The bike enthusiasts who are like like the weird guy who shows up to work like in his biking shorts and he doesn't care, he's stinky all day and like right. because he's a triathlete and and that like that it's only attracting that person. We we call them mammals, which stands for middle-aged men in lycra. <laughs> amazing mammals <laughs> yes yes and and bless them bless them because they were fighting the good fight to try and claim some road space but you know i i very early in my career one of the first projects i worked on was in the street called telegraph avenue in oakland and you know i just remember showing up to community meetings and you'd have these sort of normal people who were showing up to to try and understand why you know, some idiot came up with this plan to, yeah. like, put a bike lane down this street and dressed in normal clothing. And then there'd be all these guys in saggy Lycra. And I'd just be like, oh, yeah. And these are my champions. <laughs> I have to figure out a way to normalize it. So that's what yeah. you're seeing now is this evolution towards more protected bikeways, which actually makes it even harder because it requires more space. But there's a huge battle in California and in the nation, but really nowhere was it more intense than in California between the vehicular cyclists mm -hmm. and this movement to provide these bikeways that were going to attract a much broader range of, yeah. of cyclists, especially women, mm. um, because it just ran totally counter to the whole philosophy that bikes should behave as traffic. It's like an ideology about bikes that, that mm -hmm. bikes should. And I mean, I think that way sometimes where like if I'm on a bike, which I, I have not had a bike in L.A., but. But uh, I remember when I tried in New York, I'd be like, I'm a I'm a car, too. Like, I get to be in the lane. You sort of adopt that. I am traffic. Yeah, I am traffic. But you're not really when you're when you're a bike. Is that well, what you say? I would say that uh, that that kind of um, mindset isn't it, it's difficult for people, especially if they haven't ridden in a while mm -hmm. to get to that point. Yeah. Right. Especially I mean, men outnumber women about three to one on bikes in cities. Wow. Um, and we know from a lot of research we've done on these protected bike lanes across the U.S. that they do attract more women. They do attract uh, more sort of women who might have a car, might have their kids, you know, on right. an extra cycle in the back. And they even attract more casual bicyclists. It seems like the built environment of the city still gets in the way of people using those new options, right? Like I live in Echo Park and, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, great. An expo line and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, buses and all these other things. Oh, I would love to use them. I live at the top of a hill, though, you mm -hmm. know, like I live I live a mile from any of those things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so while I'm very happy that they exist, I still end up, you know, uh, driving, uh, even though I'm I'm like the biggest you know, a uh, uh, person rooting for public transit, but I end up not using it because it still feels like that barrier is high. Is that is that a challenge that you guys are facing? Or well, how did you pick where you lived? It was where my uh, girlfriend's brother lived. So we moved and we moved in with him in Echo Park. He had just so it was like pure necessity, right? We moved here and we were yes, it was absolutely yeah. it was absolute necessity, and it was also very much. I mean, this is this is dumb, but I lived in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, which is sort of where people in their late twenties who are you know working in the Arts live, and I was like, which neighborhood is the place where people in their late 20s, early 30s live in L.A.? Looks like it's Echo Park, so I moved there, and that was the most thought I put into it. So two things. <laughs> Thing one is, um, is Los Angeles a hugely challenging retrofit for mobility? Let's call them broadly transportation options, right? Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. here we're talking about, you know, buses, subways, biking. Uh, we're talking about Lyft and Uber and taxis and, you know, eventually car share and bike share and all those things. 
Absolutely it is. Um, but it is also a city that has these streets that are just tremendously wide. So it's mm-hmm. got a really broad sort of, um, you know, canvas right of or? way. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I would say canvas, but it's like these these big rights of way that are just crying out to be reorganized and um, and rationalized for mm-hmm. the way people get around now because – not everybody rides a bike, and in particular, in Echo Park in your neighborhood um, and the neighborhoods that ring downtown, about a third of people don't have access to a car. Mm-hmm. So we know there's actually a huge population out there um, that that depends on these other modes of transportation yes. as a lifeline. And there's also probably a lot of people like you who don't really want to drive every time they want to leave their home. They mm-hmm. want to have, you know, a more mellow, be able to like ride a bike and to date night with your girlfriend or right. whatever it is, you know, or maybe you don't want to drive downtown because parking is going to be a hassle and you want some other way to do that trip. Not for every single one, but probably a couple times a week, you wish you didn't have to drive all the time, right? And yes. so um, figuring out how to take a city that was built around the car and retrofit it for all these other options is something that's really meaningful and valuable because it has so many applications to other cities across the United States. Mm -hmm. If we can do it in Los Angeles, then Houston can do it and Dallas can do it and Cincinnati can do it and St. Louis can do it, you know, and all those all those other cities. So I think that what gets people down is they start thinking about, um, and this is sort of old school kind of um, planning or or bike planning is, well, we have to do these really long routes so that people can get out of their cars and use their bikes to commute. And that just is not the way that this is going to happen. It's Mm going to happen by me looking at things at a neighborhood scale and Mm. making it really easy for you to bike or walk or use other modes for all the short trips that you make. And I will wager that probably most most of the trips you make are under three miles or under five miles. Under five um, miles, yeah, I'd you say know, so, yeah. say about half of them, right? And so figuring out a way to, to sort of do that at a neighborhood scale is not something that people have spent a lot of time investing in and thinking about yet. So it's really like a patchwork of, of all the different ways that people might want to get around. It's so, it's so funny because you always hear about, um, uh, you, you know, People people make assumptions about how other people get around. You know, I, I actually spent about three months in LA about five years ago because I was working one job and I didn't know how to drive then. Right, I was staying at a place in, uh, you know, I crash landed in LA. It was my very first comedy writing job. I crash landed at a place in North Hollywood. <laughs> um, uh-huh. uh, actually, no. At first, I started in, in Hollywood and then I was tra- commuting to North Hollywood. It's a metro and line up there. I exactly. I did that because I could take the metro line mm-hmm. and I bought a bike and I would bike to the metro line and I would get on, take my bike on the metro. And I would get off and I would bike again, which was difficult because I was hauling a bike up and down stairs and it was very hot. And people would literally be shocked Mm -hmm. to see me and they'd be like, how did you you bike what you biked here? I don't know anyone who bikes or I take the bus and they'd be like. Oh, no one takes the bus. <laughs> or I, they'd be, you took the, the metro? What? I've lived here 10 years. No one takes the metro. And it, it's weird because people say like, oh, the buses are terrible. I hate the bus. I never take it. But they maybe they should say like, well, if the bus is terrible, that must be awful for all the people who need to take the bus. Right. You know, like we should improve the bus then because like the, you know, what about the poor, I don't know, person who, who you know, works in the same building as you but can't afford a car and is like stuck with a commute that, that could be better if we if we improved it. Does that make sense? Well, I think you can see it in just the giant 
uh, market share that Uber and Lyft have captured in Los Angeles. Yes. It's like, you know, I, I would hear these myths about L.A. Oh, it's car capital and everybody loves to drive. And what I found when I got here is that nobody really loves to drive because the traffic is miserable and it's yeah. not that enjoyable to be in your car and it feels like a grind. And all of those things are backed up by science. You know, people who yes. have long commutes, they have shorter lives. They are yes. less happy. I mean, the happiest commuters are the ones who walk to work. I read right? I read once that New York had uh, the lo- one of the longest average commutes, but people rated themselves as as being happiest with their commutes mm-hmm. because they could read and sit like everyone's like, oh, I hate the subway. But in reality, people people can like read a magazine or, you know, sort of be in their own world. They don't because they don't have a job. Yeah. <laughs> when you're on the subway, you don't have to make sure you don't kill anybody. <laughs> right. And it's called found. It's called found time. There's a word oh, for it. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, all of a sudden I'm on the train or I'm on the bus and. I can listen to a podcast or I can read my yes. read the book I'm reading or I can hello I can just people watch which is yes. also Wonderful. one of the ama- I mean that's one of the reasons why people founded cities to begin with is because we like to be around each other yes. we like to observe each other and when you're in your car you lose that and you gain what you gain is sort of a not the sense of anonymous groupthink where you know you're kind of isolated and all the things that you were articulating earlier so you know I I think that um I think that what people are signaling when Uber and Lyft capture a huge market share or when, you know, we open up a new bikeway and it's, you know, that we we double or triple the number of people who are using it overnight um, is that people are ahead of the politics and the policies and the way what they, we're not providing for them what they want. Mm-hmm. And so we, it's incumbent upon us to invest in all of the modes. Yes. Um, and, and the ones that have had sort of decades of disinvestment are all the ones that we're talking about. Well, we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back talking to Salita Reynolds from the LADOT. Hi, I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And I'm Emily Heller. And if you're not listening to our podcast, Baby Geniuses, you're missing out on stuff like... Camille Nanjiani solving the Zodiac murders. Who's like... Would you ever go to a friend and you're like, hey, could you lick all these lick all these envelopes for me? You'd be like, you're a serial killer. <laughs> definitely, I'm leaving right now. Guy Branham talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and it was, it was just a great moment of like, oh, no, I'm here, boys. Like, I'm on this side of the bench... Megan Amram talking about intimidating baristas. Just feel like they're always in character. Like, they're always in character as, like, cool hipster girl. Uh And I just want to break through that barrier. Plus, every week we explore a new Wikipedia page and talk to a crazy expert in the field of nonsense. Well, any any hack can make you not have a boner. I mean, that's it's about how you do it. Right. You know? And we're the only podcast with regular updates about Martha Stewart's pony or your money back. We're not going to give them their money back, are we? Mm, no. Let's keep it. Yeah. Listen to our show every other Monday on Maximum Fun. Yay! Yay! Once again, this is Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm talking with Salita Reynolds, the general manager of the L.A. Department of Transportation. Uh, So, Salita, here's my question about Uber and Lyft. 
these services, uh, despite you know all of their problems and uh, all the concerns everyone has about them, have also revolutionized travel in Los Angeles. Like it, they've made Los Angeles, like frankly, five times as livable. It's so much easier to get around than it was before. And come to think of it, it seems like a service that the public sector should have been providing. The reason that gap was there and the private sector swooped in was the public sector wasn't filling that need. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, totally. And it's it happened because we. Totally Totally failed to evolve public transit and taxis um, in a way that was rider focused, mm-hmm. right? And that's why that giant gaping maw existed for for those companies to fill. And everything that we do to regulate or to to engage or to collaborate with them is is sort of precedent setting for the arrival of connected and, and driverless vehicles, right? Mm. Because that's kind of where things are going next. And, it's, and nobody has a, the magic crystal ball that can really predict with certainty what's going to happen. But I can tell you that it is going to grow out of what's happening with Uber and Lyft right now unless the public side gets to the table in a meaningful way. Because what the public sector does is make sure the city is served equitably. Yes. Right. And make sure that people who can benefit most from those services, either the very old and the very young people, with disabilities, people who don't have enough money to buy their own car, they uh, can that those fares are affordable to them. There are questions around labor um, and and sort of how that's all working, et cetera. Um, so it was very interesting to watch what happened in Austin. Did you pay any attention to that? I did. I believe what happened was that Austin wanted to like background check the drivers more thoroughly, including a fingerprint and Uber Uber and Lyft, I assume, sort of got together and said, we're pulling out of the city entirely, right? So the playbook is you show up in a city, you become so ubiquitous and popular that when, insert politician's name here, decides they want to come and regulate you, yep. um, there's this public outcry because you, you've become so popular. And I don't think it's necessarily the right where we should be focusing. But most where most politicians go is background checks and driver safety. Mm-hmm. So it happened in Portland. They did the same thing. They came into the city. They pulled out. People freaked out. But there, the mayor and the director of transportation were able to get those companies to the table and kind of come up with a more collaborative kind of pseudo-regulation. What happened in Austin is that um, the mayor and city council said, OK, we want a background. We want to fingerprint your drivers. Uber and Lyft paid to put a ballot measure on the ballot to allow mm-hmm. the people to vote <laughs> because Air they, quotes, you they I just want to note, Slita did some big air quotes around the people. The people. So because they're super popular, right? And so, of course, they're going to crush that vote. Well, they didn't crush that vote. They lost that vote. And so then they had to make good on their promise that they were going to leave town if they lost that vote. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in Austin is pretty fascinating. First of all, I hope somebody is paying attention to what's going on with bike share transit and traffic, um, because that's a city where they were very well established and now they're gone. So what what were their that's the big question. So in what cities, are what kind of impacts? What kind of mm-hmm. impacts are these services having? Are they creating more congestion? Are they taking trips off public transit? Are they taking bike just, walk trips? Just from a research standpoint, it would yeah. be interesting. Yeah. Right. Because this is going to be, you know, if it's precedent setting for the future of our cities, we need to understand what all of the kind of pros and cons are as we're making these decisions. Because, you know, they've people tend to focus on it that it's like a, a they're called transportation network companies, TNCs, mm-hmm. TNC versus taxi argument, it's totally not. It's a TNC versus every other mode of transportation argument yes. because they're taking trips off public transit. In Hollywood and in, in Los Angeles, they're taking trips that people would otherwise bike or walk. Yeah. 
So, it's you true. know, especially for particularly de- for I've, millennials. I've definitely I've definitely done it where, yeah, like, well, I could walk or I could take an Uber and it'll be five minutes faster or whatever. And I won't have to. But you that know. is just mind blowing. No, I know. I try not to no, no, sleep. I try to be good. No, no, I don't really do it that much. I don't really do it that much, you know, but it's but yeah, I mean, it, it, it it's it's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. it, the thing that bugs me most about the ride sharing is the um, is the idea where Lyft used to be the worst with this, where they'd be like, they'd be like, hey, we're not. It's not like a cab. It's just like your neighbor who's like taking you for a ride. You sit in the front, give him a fist bump, yeah, and chat with him. It's like, no, I'm paying for a service, man. You're a cabbie. Just be a cabbie. That's all I want. It's. I'm very glad that you're. You don't need to a a license or whatever. You know, that's fine. But like, I'm. I'm paying. Just let me do my thing. You know. Um. uh, It's a little antisocial, but you know, like uh, often you're. You know, you're stressed out. You're going to meet somebody, or you're going to work, or something like that. Yeah. So Um, I have my. I have my. I'm always like, hey, is it busy today? Like I get. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Guys. Yeah. Make some talk. Busy, how long you been driving? <laughs> oh, really? Is this uh, what you do full time or are you just filling in the blanks? Okay, I, cool. I had a driver ask me once. They asked me. Uh, their first question was like, so – what kind of music do you like? Like, not because they wanted to change the radio. Like, they were just like, like we were on a first date, <laughs> like in eighth grade. What kind of music? Yeah. Do you, oh, I don't know, hip hop, anything but country or whatever. Like, what kind of conversation? Really, like, well, you got to shut that conversation down. You got to be like, you know what, Christian rock? Do you have any striper or do you have anything you can put on, like Amy Grant, old Amy Grant? <laughs> so, is your goal to? fill, you know, that gap that, that, you know, Uber and Lyft are currently filling by creating more forms of public transportation or? My goal is to get cities to the table in the conversation about Mm -hmm. taxi bots or robo taxis or whatever we're going to call them. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, when cars showed up on the scene, we call them horseless carriages and nobody, I mean, you know, that that they became something (laughs) totally different, right? So whatever you think right now about what Uber and Lyft are going to turn into. I mean, Lyft has this huge deal they did with General Motors where they're testing autonomous vehicles. Uber has their own R&D around autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. Every major manufacturer is doing that same thing, that cities are not at the table making sure that whatever our vision is for the future, whatever we want our cities to be, and I would argue, you know, at a basic level, we want them to be uh, places that are happy and thriving and strong and yes. creative and everyone would agree with you that. know and also healthy and you know all of the and affordable and equitable you know whatever those those things mean um, and cities are not yet really engaging and so mm-hmm. it's concerning that we're sort of letting the private sector figure it out right yes. and, I, and this is something I would hear from transportation people for the last four or five years it'd be like you know the robots are coming. You know, there's a there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer's like, I for one welcome our new alien overlords, yeah. right? And it felt that way. It felt yes. like people were saying, Well, the market's gonna figure it out. I'm like, the market's not gonna figure it out. Yeah. We have to be at the table to make sure that we're trying things out, we're testing things out, we're taking risks, we're pushing boundaries, and we're trying to collaborate and, and partner with those private companies. But we're also trying to put our own product on the street, You know, whether that is a, a municipally owned fleet of driverless vehicles that mm-hmm. operates from a digital dispatch. I think it's really critical because if you envision a future where it's just all a bunch of you know Swedish Volvo bots driving us around, <laughs> um, we don't have enough curb space to accommodate that future. Yeah. Right. I don't have enough space as the Department of Transportation to be able to accommodate every single person in the city getting around in that way. Well, and there's already so much. I mean, since working on our cars episode, I've looked around the city more, you know, in terms of I will just look and say and think, look at how much space is devoted 
in any city, even in New York, to moving people around to the to the streets, you know, um, and uh, then storing those things when storing, they don't have people in them. That's the that's the craziest it's crazy. The craziest part to me was, you know, thinking about it with my comedy brain of, of sort of like, you know, I'm an alien who's come to Earth looking at this for the first time. The fact that. Uh, so much of my day is spent figuring out where to keep the two-ton piece of metal that brought me to where I am and that that's my job and that, you know, you need to buy space to put it and that everybody is doing this at once and that could be used for people, could be using this space. We could be walking in it. We could have we could build buildings there. We could have little, I don't know, mini playgrounds or, or I don't know. Protected bikeways. Yeah, exactly. And once my eyes were open to that and I stopped taking it ser- you know i stopped uh, taking it for granted it was it was shocking it's to nuts, me it's nuts right and it's you know we don't really have a congestion problem what we have is an efficiency problem because there's so mm. much space in those vehicles being unused it's just sitting there <laughs> empty right you can look around and see on the yes. freeway you know and we also well, i would that, argue it's that thing of it's that thing of like 40 40 cars 50 cars worth of people is right. equal to like one subway car in terms of how many people are being moved yeah pull all the roofs off those cars and see how many more people people you could be moving in that same right of way because we have to live within our means. We're not going to deck those suckers. We're not going to widen the freeways. So we have to figure out a way to be more efficient with what we're given. And so that's really what my focus is. Yeah, it's, it's almost as though L.A. was built in this extremely low-density way because it's like, oh, it's out west and we got so much space and everything will be so far apart and everyone gets their own single-family home. And now it's like it's – but so many people live here now that it's like, oh, crap. Like we can't – we actually built it so low-density we can't fit all the people in who need <laughs> who need Who space. need to. And you go out to some of these neighborhoods and you'll see, you know, there's people packed into these little – these single family homes and then you go around the corner and there's a an RV parked out back and yes. somebody's living there and so our our poverty and our density in Los Angeles looks different than it does almost anywhere else because of the way mm-hmm. the city was built having said that you know in Koreatown and 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 where we are around MacArthur Park um some of the densest places uh west of the Mississippi is dense in Manhattan in some places Koreatown is so really? yeah we have tremendous density here and our streets need to catch up yeah. so that you know we we sort of help people uh make these other choices because the system we're giving them right now doesn't allow them any of those other choices. So you mentioned uh, uh, autonomous cars, which I think is uh, obviously I feel like that's that's uh, it's a hot topic, as it they is. say. It's very 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 sexy topic. It is. Um, I'm kind of an autonomous car skeptic because I I see everyone talks about them as though it's just around the corner and it like is a fait accompli and has already happened. Uh, is it something that you're that you're making plans for to deal with now, or or is it an oversold dream? Well, I think that you're observing two things. One is people are so desperate for a solution to and they feel like this will get them there and yes. when you when you talk to the feds about it or when you talk to you know those those uh, stodgy engineers that you know don't work at DOT by the way and my engineers are awesome but those stodgy <laughs> old school engineers who are sort of you know let's build the the lanes super wide um, they look at autonomous vehicles and they think about um, they're maximizing something called flow theory which is like how many tr- 
cars you can get mm-hmm. through a given space, you know, at, at a given time. Right. Because there's not going to be tailgating anymore because these things are going to be able to, to ride, you know, inches away from each other. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this is going to fi- the the sort of mythical maximum capacity of our American freeway system is finally going to be reached. They, they'll go at they'll go at 80 miles an hour, an inch away from each other, and it'll be a perfectly efficient right. robot car. Giant and, platoon of robots. And by the way, why is this is the bizarre thing about autonomous cars. What, when you describe that, people are like, yeah, everyone will have their own autonomous car. You get in, you get out, and then they'll be so close together and there'll be so many of them. It's like you're describing a train. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's I a, know. It's a giant train. It's a train. <laughs> it's a what, train. You wanted a train the whole time. You wanted a train the whole time, but a train where you can have six seats all to yourself and, <laughs> you know, listen to your crappy, uh, you know, music. And right. And and then they'll say, when we'll be able to get twice as many cars through an intersection as we can right now. Right. They and they do. This is this is what they're yeah. thinking. Right. That that this is that's sort of and that's kind of why people I think you're getting on the one side. People are so excited. Because it's yeah. like we're finally going to be able to solve all these problems and, and that have been the- impossible to crack. But the other thing you're hearing is also from um, urbanists and people who care about, you know, cities thinking, well, but if we could get to this future where, you know, shared mobility or sort of, um, you know, the Uber and Lyft idea and driverless vehicles can rise together and mm-hmm. we can crack that nut around the efficiency problem that we were talking about before. Um, and and then maybe I don't need all that room to store these dormant assets because they're constantly circulating in the city and they're picking up and they're dropping off, you know, kind of like a bus, but um, but it, more nimble, right? Because they're not fixed to a certain route. They can kind of move around. And when you look at the map of where Uber and Lyft have served in Los Angeles, even within just a year of launching, I mean, it's a spider web that, that stretches across the whole city. And you right. look at the map of our bus and our train system and it's static and it's they're fixed. going places that, that right. w- weren't being served before. And then you hear people talk about safety. You know, if you're if you're in something that literally will not allow you to be the cause of a crash, you know, we can get to Vision Zero in, mm-hmm. you know, next year. Vision Zero, that's the hope that, that we can eliminate traffic, traffic deaths. Right. So so those two views on autonomous vehicles are directly opposed to one another. <laughs> Right. Yeah, there's the people who say it's going to be it's all going to be about safety and equitability, and mobility between and affordability. And, and then there's the people who are like, it's the same thing, but twice as fast. Right. That's right. That's right. And there are never <laughs> any people in those sims, the simulations that you see of the I'm all, I'm watching them and I'm like, where are the oh, God wait, that it. little dot right there. I think that's yeah. a person. Oh, no, it just got run over. That's not a person. I don't know what that is. It's just a, <laughs> just a ghost in the machine. Right. So so those two. That's what you're hearing is that yeah. from from both sides of the transportation is everyone's aisle. projecting their fantasy onto it, it and it's tremendously attractive for that reason right? right and then and then you've got the folks who are sort of you know over in the corner saying you know bah that's not gonna happen and you know we're still what's still gonna matter about cities is that the, you know you can bike and walk and blah 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 <laughs> so you get the kind of you I guess get that's me the kind of the the luddites you know that are sort of thinking yeah. about things and i you know i say that fondly because i myself uh, consider the Shire my home, and I'm, I'm totally <laughs> skeptical of new technology. Also, Adam, so I'm see, right there with you. I do. I'm some mid digital hair. Anyway, <laughs> um, so but but so all of that in, in, is sort of inside the transportation realm. And then right. when you start talking to non transportation people, they're like, "Oh, but it's like 50 years away, right? That's not happening tomorrow." Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is that there's a, a guy in California that built his own self-driving car with some software and some some cameras really? in his garage last year. 
Really? So on the one hand, yeah, it seems far away. On the other hand, the people who should be thinking about this stuff are projecting a whole bunch of different futures on it. And yeah. then, you know, on my third hand, um, there's, you know, this stuff is actually really happening and it's it's being driven by um, folks who are not in any of those sectors. It's being driven by mostly auto manufacturers who are very concerned with the trend that people are not uh, purchasing vehicles anymore, mm-hmm. that people are not getting their driver's licenses, that, you know, when you give um, teenagers and and, uh, and sort of younger folks a choice between a car and a smartphone, they pick the smartphone because yes. that's their ticket to independence. We talked to a um, uh, uh, a uh, uh, fellow named Mike Berners-Lee who, who writes about carbon footprints and things like that for an episode that we're doing, and he talked about uh, the thing with autonomous cars is they could go they could be good or bad mm-hmm. um, because it could be a wonderful new transportation system that lowers everyone's carbon footprint or you could have people saying well now I can live two hours outside of the city get my autonomous car there's a bed in the back I'll sleep in it and, and a now- toilet yeah and a toilet there, are, there will need to be toilets <laughs> For that well, future to happen. Well, why not? Right. right. And and so now I can commute twice as far. Yeah. Hey, it's an electric car. Well, it's if you're driving twice as far, you're not having any carbon benefit. And so that that could happen. There could mm-hmm. be an autonomous car future with more traffic, higher carbon footprints, maybe more deaths that's less equitable, right? Yeah. And how do we how do we avoid that future and get the one that we all prefer? Well, I think first and foremost Cities have to set a vision, right? And they have to say, this is the outcome that we want, right? Mm -hmm. And it probably doesn't change that much from whatever the vision is that your city has for its transportation system right now. Yeah. Second, I think that uh, cities are going to remain the the success of a city and sort of, um, you know, what we think of as in a sort of ambiguous way as a great city is still going to begin and end with the people in the public spaces that are in that city. Mm -hmm. And so keeping that as sort of the North Star of the focus of of what we what we're after and what the outcomes are that we want. I want democratic public spaces. I want to see in everybody who lives in this city. I want to have those spontaneous interactions with them that might inspire me to go, you know, write a screenplay or, you know, go uh, write some create some kind of a policy. You know, all of those things that make cities great really start with our public spaces and then safety, keeping a focus first and foremost on um, safe streets that you know are safest for the vulnerable user at the top of the transportation food chain. They're going to be safer for everybody else. Um, and then finally, uh, land use. Um, well, I guess equity is in there also. So making sure that those <laughs> things are are we're making that investment and we're we're rethinking how we invest our public transit funds so that we offset the the cost of those services so that they're available to everybody. But then land use and making sure that we have smart um, you know urban growth boundaries and smart land use policies and smart affordable housing policies um, so that, uh, you know, we have the cities that we want and we don't we learn our lesson um, from the tremendous sort of negative impacts of sprawl um, that we've experienced. So here, here's what I want to know. And and we've talked a lot about like this, the specific, you know, ways in which uh, we hope our cities will be better and how and how we can move them there. Um, are people 100 years from now going to look at 
car culture in the United States and just be baffled that anybody thought that this was a good way to do it. Like they were individually piloting these these combustion engines around and like they just accept. You, you know how when you like uh, you know, go look at like, oh, when the Brooklyn Bridge, Bridge was built, the, it 300 people died. And we're like, mm-hmm. we can't believe they were OK with 300 people dying, like building a bridge. And the number of deaths that we accept now as like, I don't know, was it 40,000 people a year die mm-hmm. in traffic fatalities in the U.S.? Where it's just like, yeah, that's what that's what we accept. We accept that a hundred years from now, we'll pe- when we're all in our autonomous train pods, you know, uh, r- sleeping in the back, and you know, there's zero emissions and and uh, et cetera. Uh, is you know, is this going to look insane or? Well, I think that the sort of transportation system of a hundred years from now, I think will still. You know, um, nothing that we can do, even even building an internal combustion engine has been enough to uh, take away that kind of fundamental evolutionary desire that we have to uh, be around each other. Yeah. And so I think it's possible um, that we, you know, we look back and we think, oh, that was just madness. You yeah. know, what were we <laughs> we thinking? Because everybody thinks that there was a place called Phoenix and there, it was horrible. There's a, well, because everybody thinks they're a great driver. You yes. ask people, are you a good driver? Oh, Rate no. yourself on a scale of one to ten. People are like, I'm an eight, clearly. Oh, and I'm so just, bad. I'm being modest. That's most people, Adam. Most people will tell you that. But we also know that almost all car crashes happen because of human error. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah. And so... What other error are they happening because of earthquakes? <laughs> like, what else is going on other than people screwing up? Right. And so, and so this idea that somehow if we can finally take the human maybe diminish their role in the equation, mm-hmm. um, that people will finally be able to say, oh, my word, look at how much how much safer everything is, yes. you know, and, and what were we thinking? Um, I hope that we'll, we'll get to that place and that we will, you know, you will pay, you know, some amount of money and, uh, you know, a month and you'll be able to use a huge variety of transportation options. And maybe someday, you know, want, some days you want to get in your robo taxi, but then other days you want to ride your bike or other days you want to walk or other days you want to get on the subway depending on where you need to go and why. And you just have this huge array of options and you can make that decision when you're like in the moment you're walking out the door. You don't have to plan it all out and have like 20 different cards and like 16 different apps on your phone. It's all sort of Oh, made you're, really simple. You're, you're like describing a fantasy to me. I'm like, it's, it's like you're, this is like erotic fiction for the transportation enthusiast in me. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, it's good stuff, and right? It, and it also reminds me of, I don't know, I was in Tokyo <laughs> like uh, mm-hmm. a couple months ago, and that's what it reminded me of, where it was like, I, f- I felt like if there was some place I needed to go, I just left my house and went there, and like, I need, oh, I'll take a train. Oh, there's a train right there. Like, it right. was just so. It was it was so seamless so in that easy. way. So easy. Didn't yeah. have to think about it, right? Yeah. And that's that's the reason why I think bike share works in a lot of cities. Mm. You don't have to think about it. You just go and you jump on a bike. You don't have to haul your bike up and down the stairs at the transit station or, you know, make sure that you have a pump on you because you might get a flat or a wrench or whatever. And you don't have to have a gigantic, you know, 20-pound motorcycle lock so that your bike doesn't – you know, all of those yeah. things to focus. And that what that is – is a, a shift, a sort of a, a tectonic shift to focus on the user experience. That's what you want in transportation. You, you want to like say, I want to get a cup of coffee and then just go. It's mm-hmm. it's almost like. And the, everybody deserves that. Yes. Everybody should have that. Not just, you know, the folks who 
have a lot of, of, of resources to be able yeah. to have that kind of experience now. I'll leave it on that note. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you for that. Thank you for uh, even just, you know, shooting for that, you know, because that's that's so obviously so important. Well, thanks for having me in. All right. That was Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast, the inaugural episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We will be back in two weeks. So please tune in. New episode on June 8th. Our producer is Shara Morris and our senior producer is Colin Anderson. Thanks also to John Wolf and Sam Sparks and Jesse Thorne at Maximum Fun. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, your favorite podcast app, whatever it is. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever it is that you subscribe. And once again... Lest you forget, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is coming back August 23rd. That is our big premiere. You can also find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. And hey, if you enjoyed the show or you hated it and you want to tell me what you thought of it, please tweet at me at Adam Conover. I'd love to hear what you think, and we'll see you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.